0: I have called up in all my inch years of inch, sorcery with no care, of God mood, or
1: devil, really ominous and gibous and, and, and the thing was a streaming ooze of
2: charnel wormy Solution. corpses that he dug with his hands from unconsecrated graves it it is is verily known by few of were people, bastard, but as never seen women it is told that me picked up as they fled and pulled limb from limb as a child might quarter an insect
0: The double, the double shadow, shadow a Clark
1: Ashton Smith podcast
3: Hello, and welcome to The Double Shadow, a podcast exploring the weird fiction of 20th century writer Clark Ashton Smith.
1: I'm Tim. I'm Phil.
0: And I'm Ruth.
3: And I'm Jason. Yay!
0: Woo! We got another person?
3: That's right. I'm here, a mysterious voice in the dark.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Whisper obscenities to us. I mean, occult obscenities. I
3: mean, I'll be quiet.
1: Yeah, so that mysterious voice in the darkness is Jason Thompson.
3: Hi, guys. I love your show, and I love Clark Ashton Smith, and these two things go together very well, I find.
2: Jason, tell us who you are.
3: I'm the creator of a bunch of comics. I did an adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Uh, I did the King of RPGs graphic novel series with my friend Victor Howe, and um, I wrote a book on manga, Manga the Complete Guide, I've worked as a uh, comic editor um, for about 10 years, and I uh, also like to make them. And I love old-school fantasy and sci-fi and horror. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with you folks.
1: The pleasure is ours.
2: I'm so excited to have our first guest. It's super uh, It's super exciting.
0: Yes, and you've drawn a Clark Ashton Smith comic, which just happens to be the story that we're covering this week. So what is the story?
3: The Tale of Septempra Zeros. This
0: will be our first story in Hyperborea, which... We've obviously heard alluded to, I think, in both Poseidonus and in Averon.
2: Oh, it's been mentioned in both? Yeah, I, I think, think so. I think in
0: both. But yeah. I, think,
3: I think with Hyperborea and later the Seek, he really, really gets into his mode. Because he's totally, he's creating places which are, I mean, there's still a faint, like, historical background for Hyperborea. But un, but even more than Poseidonus and Averone, he's really just... Going crazy mm-hmm. with stuff that that's completely out of his own mind. So, yeah, I love Hyperborea. I think it's my, it's my favorite Smith setting personally.
2: Hyperborea is a notion that comes from from antiquity, right? It's it's not something that that Smith made up himself. Do you do you know the historical background of Hyperborea? I mean, I threw some Wikipedia nonsense in here, but I was wondering if you knew anything more about it. No, yeah, I mean,
3: I assume we've both got Wikipedia open, but yeah, Hyperborea is. Um, I mean, it was basically the ancient <laughs> Greeks' name for the. Um, the mysterious polar regions north of Europe, right? The land beyond the mm-hmm. north wind, I, or I believe it was. Mm-hmm. So it could have, it probably was just an analog for Britain. Right. But, you know, this, if they had all these crazy legends about it and what, you know, what all those strange creatures that existed there and the weird habits of the people, most of which Smith seems to have completely ignored and just made up his own stuff, like was <laughs> but, um, But the name, I've always said the name was really cool. And, um, yeah, the awesome. and when I was a kid, I had this, uh, this book, this children's book called uh, Inventorum Natura uh, by this illustrator called Una Woodruff. It purported to be a tran- an illustrated transcript of the explorations of Pliny the Elder as he traveled around <laughs> the globe. It's really cool. You should link to it. And it has like the illustrations of all the places he went, which include like Africa and India and China, but also Hyperborea. I think is his last stop. And in Hyperborea, there's all kinds of jungles with man-eating plants and stuff. (laughs) And uh, they're like cliffs that are shaped like human corpses. And just, yeah, I read that when I was a little kid. And coincidentally, my dad, who was like a big horror fan, who was the guy who got me into horror and science fiction and stuff. He had the 1970s Ballantine Books editions of um, the Clark Ashton Smith Hyperborea and *Poseidonis*, and the Seed Collections.
1: Oh, really? Those are awesome.
3: Yeah, the artwork on them is great. And um, so that's how I got into Smith, actually. Around junior high-ish age.
1: Cool, yeah. yeah by quite a bit. pedigree.
3: Or just an old veteran of the clark ashton's <laughs> wars <laughs> right that's it and uh, I, lo- I love how he in the various Hyperborea stories it has um like Poseidonus and the seek it has this narrative of decay where where it's um you know it's this lush tropical paradise it's jun- well, not a paradise but it's this lush jungle and and but simultaneously it's being overtaken by the glaciers from the north as the ice oh. age sets in mm-hmm, um right. you know so it's and it, so it's never like a, a pleasant, comfortable, like, hobbit right. land-like setting with fields and farms. It's, always, it's either like crazy jungle or it's like a frozen wasteland. So right. it's, it's super exotic and super cool.
2: I have a, like, a weird tales circle of writers question. None of us may know the answer to, depending on our knowledge of Robert E. Howard. But Conan takes place in the Hyborian Age, which, of course, is mm-hmm. different, right, than Hyperborea. Does anybody amongst us have any idea if the two are even remotely related, or or if Robert E. Howard just decided he didn't want to use Hyperborea and so he made the Hyborian Age? Or is it just a coincidence that the two words sound somewhat similar? And if we don't have an answer, I'll excuse us for not knowing.
0: Um I've heard the rumor that he just took the Hyperborea idea and dropped it off so that he could make it his own thing and not tie it in with the myth. So he didn't have to be Pretend to be faithful and say, "Oh, well, in Hyperborea it was this way."
2: Jason, are you are you a Robert E. Howard person as well, or do you I'm not just much of a Robert to...
0: E. Howard person? Um,
3: yeah. yeah, I like I, I like Smith for very more for very specific reasons. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that's, that that uh, I think that Howard was just kind of using a word that sounded like Hyperborea, kind of like with right. a lot of his place names, whereas Smith just was just nailing his own completely deranged <laughs> fantasy setting onto a onto a real word. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, Jason, you've done a graphic a graphic novel slash comic adaptation of this story. Um, what made you choose this one in particular out of all of the Clark Ashton Smith, or out of all of the Hyperboreas, since we know that's your favorite setting?
3: Well, it was in let's see, it was like about it was in like 1999 actually, and I had just finished my uh, adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's Dream Quest of Unknown Cadass, which was my first comic. And uh, I was looking for more stuff to do that was a, a, kind of a fantasy vein that had lots of really detailed backgrounds and, and stuff that I could draw and monsters and so on. And uh, I kind of just settled on Smith because I love his work. To me, he's kind of like the love child of Robert E. Howard and H.P. Lovecraft. He's got that totally ornate language, which is more like Lovecraft. But he's got like the heroic adventure part, which is like, which is like Howard. But then everyone right. dies and it, all, and it always ends horribly, which is more like Lovecraft <laughs> again.
2: Yeah, nobody nobody has quite the tone that Clark Ashton Smith has. Yeah. Like, in this story, a little bit, but it, I mean, you won't be with us for Door to Saturn, but Door to Saturn, I can't really even wrap my mind around exactly what the hell he was going for, because <laughs> like, it's just like surreal and that it's it has such an incredible w- wry wit, but you kind of almost miss it because you're in the middle of trying to wrap your mind around all these ridiculous things. And there's a little bit of that in in this story, definitely, where it's like comedic... But then darkly comedic, but then also an adventure story, but then also mm-hmm. horrific, but then also fantasy. Yeah, like it just—it's just like, hey, let's take everything. I'll take
3: it all.
1: Which is why it makes the best D and D story.
3: That is true. It is so D&D. It's more like D&D first edition and not like fourth edition where right, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: there's nothing fourth edition about this story. No. No. <laughs> Can we make this the D&D nerdiest of our episodes?
0: Woo! We could try. <laughs>
2: well, we did. Remember that way, way, way back in... Um, in Efron. The story with the vampires who were really dumb was like a story, <laughs> was like a and d adventure run by a bad DM. <laughs> right. With uh,
0: really bad roles.
1: Who's just yeah. reading right out of the module. <laughs>
2: I feel like we can maybe extend that metaphor and this can be an adventure run by a
3: really good DM.
0: Yeah, I feel like i running a two-person adventure that goes really terribly for the players.
3: I just, I always liked the story a lot. My 4 The four favorite stories that I really wanted to do were um, *September Zeros, The Seven Geeses, The Dark Eidolon, although that's not Hyperborea. Oh, yeah.
1: No. yeah, that yeah, story's exactly. awesome.
3: So and, uh, you know, I think there's nothing else that's at the level of those three stories. I really like the weird of Vusul Wattaquan as well, but it just kind of for the same reason as Zeros, because it's just so... Um, it's such like a punch you in the face and like run out the door sort of story. Yeah. But yeah, I like Stamper zeros. It's a really it's a pretty simple story. And there was actually a pretty fun exercise in, in comic making because I sort of started out the story, drawing the story one way, and I kind of finished it in, in, in another way um, stylistically. Because it sort of starts out as this very ornate, well, like tale which is told, and then it I, then it sort of turns into an action sequence, which uh, which was mm-hmm. fun to do. And I got the rights from the uh, Smith estate, and I uh, I, ended, I printed uh-huh. it up like um, in two thousand four. So I was going to do a whole bunch of Smith stories. I got distracted by other projects, but I, I mean I do love Smiths so perhaps one day you
1: have no plans right now to go back to doing a limited hyperborea series
3: not right now right now i'm working on a a webcomic which is a biographical black comedy about the life of h.p lovecraft nice it's about the struggles of a single woman in the 1910s trying to raise h.p lovecraft (laughs) while coping with the, the syphilis she got from her dead husband which is causing her to go insane that's the elevator pitch
0: I think, I think that's a pretty good bit. Yeah, a lighthearted little story.
1: <laughs> Phil, you want to tell us about the issue that this appeared in?
2: I would love to, Timothy. This story first appeared in the November 1931 issue of Weird Tales. It was alongside stories by Robert E. Howard, although I don't think it was a Conan story, as well as stories by Elizabeth Sheldon, Wilfred Branch Tallman, and others. It was not the cover story, which is too bad because it would have been cool to see a vintage Weird Tales cover for this story.
1: Did Smith ever have any covers, like any uh, paintings dedicated to his stories? Not that I've noticed. And come to think of it,
0: did Lovecraft
2: have any covers dedicated
1: to his stories? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so either.
0: I was able to find some info, actually. I was able to find a Smith rejection letter, or sorry, a Wright rejection letter for this story, because he originally wrote it in November of 1929, and Lovecraft adored it, and he sent it off to Wright, and Wright wrote him back this. I am reluctantly returning the other story, the tale of Satampra Zeros. I am afraid our readers, the great majority of them at least, would find the story extremely unreal and unconvincing. Personally, I fell under the spell of its splendid wording, which reminded me of Lord Dunsany's stories in the Book of Wonder. However, I feel Lord Dunsany's stories would prove unpalatable to most of our readers. So, Smith sent that letter to Lovecraft, and Lovecraft just flipped his shit. He was really angry. And so he apparently wrote to Wright and to the co-editor that was working with Wright at the time and lobbied for the story. And Smith credited in a later letter to August Derleth, I believe, the acceptance of that story to Lovecraft's advocacy. Because Lovecraft just fell in love with it. And he wrote back and he said, I love this Satagua. It's got me thinking about all these things. I'm going to put him in the mound, which is the story I'm working on for, what's her name? Hazel Heald. Yes. And... He said, you know, I'm going to have him written in for these underworld people, and it's just going to be absolutely perfect. And then two years later, finally, it did get published. So, yeah, Lovecraft was huge on the story. Wright, I, I love the way that Wright worded his rejection. You know, I fell under its spell, but the readers wouldn't like it.
1: Right. What a gent.
0: But this led me to discover that the uh, the Brown Archive has more of these right letters, which makes me want to find out just how many they have and to go there and to read the rejections of Farnsworth Wright. Yeah. And that would
1: be a great resource to get into this guy's head who had so much power at the time.
0: Exactly. So we mentioned a book in the uh in the Death of Malagras episode. I could write that book. Really? Right. <laughs> it's an awesome idea. Awesome it's cool that he mentioned Lord Insaney, because that is
3: kind of what it reminds me of a little in retrospect. It reminds me of those stories like The Probable probable Adventures of Three Literary Men, where there's some thieves who are trying to steal something, and they come to a terrible fate. But um, you know it won't be that terrible, because it is told from the first person.
0: Yeah, it could be a lot worse. Although, from the first person, limited hand.
3: I, Satan Zeros, of Osoldurum, shall write with my left hand since I have no longer any other, the tale of everything that befell Tyruv Ompalios and myself in the shrine of the god Thasoguwa, which lies neglected by the worship of man in the jungle-taken suburbs of Comorion, that long-deserted capital of the Hyperborean rulers. I shall write it with the violet juice of the Suvanna palm, which turned to a blood-red rubric with the passage of years. On a strong vellum that is made from the skin of the Mastodon is a warning to all good thieves and adventurers who may hear some lying legend of the lost treasures of Camoria and be tempted thereby.
2: That was an amazing
3: reading.
1: So we're introduced to Satampra Zeros of Uzalderum, who's writing with his left hand, strangely. Because he, he lost his other one. I wonder how he lost it. Do you think we'll find out? <laughs> hmm.
0: <laughs> it's the Chekhov's gun.
1: Everything in this first passage is so mysterious. It's, it's such a great open.
0: It's a great line. And quite colorful, too, that he chooses to write in a violet juice that turns to mm-hmm. blood red on a strong vellum made from mastodon skin. I, just, I love all the little touches that aren't necessary.
1: So this guy, Satampra, and his buddy, tiruv they're thieves, right? They yeah. make their living Pulling off these amazing heists to make money to live high on the hog.
2: Yeah, and the story lists a bunch of other of their capers, like
1: yeah, yep,
2: the theft of the jewels of Queen Conumbria.
1: the breaking of the adamantine box of a chromie.
2: That one sounds amazing. Because I know. They didn't break the box. They like what they do. They uh,
1: they burned it open with acid. Yes, mordant. With <laughs> a rare right. and mordant acid.
0: Yeah. I, I liked the one where they stole the jewels, or was it the jewels or the medallions, where they simply went in as uh, Indiana Jones style. In Jason's version of the story, the floor just covered with snakes <laughs> and other reptiles. It's creepy. Yeah,
1: venomous reptiles wandered at will. As venomous
2: <laughs> reptiles are wont to do. <laughs> yep. Jason, when you play D&D, do you play as a thief? Be honest.
3: Uh, No, I play as a wizard. I mean, a necromancer, preferably. I've read stuff. Oh, no. <laughs> the most Puglish
2: and Smithian of uh, persuasion. I
3: mean, I know what happens to thieves. I've read enough of these things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then you should know what happens to necromancers as well. <laughs> yeah, they become super awesome.
1: I know. And they never die.
3: Yeah. Yeah, just
2: skip the end
1: of those stories. Who knows?
3: <laughs> I love their flowery dialogues throughout, which dresses up the fact that they're just these like thugs. He's so eloquent in describing these awful things he, d- he does to people. And um, it reminds me a lot of Jack Vance, uh, of Jack Vance's uh, Kugel the Clever and Eyes of the Overworld books from the Dying Earth right. series, which I guess is, isn't surprising since the Dying Earth sort of is the clark ashton smith pastiche actually
1: oh absolutely yeah
0: yeah Yeah, i was handed a dying earth by one of my friends and said huh i i I know who wrote this too
3: (laughs) i mean i love i love the later dying earth stuff like um that he wrote in the, in the 60s that's got a that's got a lot of creativity and it's its own thing you know but there is in the beginning when i read the first dying earth stories they're just totally like smith they're, he's just obviously wasn't a smith fanboy <laughs> do you hear that 96 year old jack vance yeah take that
0: <laughs> well, we, we're sure he listens to our podcast
1: hi jack just in
2: case. <laughs> You're awesome. I'm a big fan. I think there is some Favard and the Grey Mauser in this stuff as well, actually. In particular, this part where they're having the debate about the bread versus the wine, and they just sort of seem like two buds like out on the town yeah. trying to decide whether to get drunk or eat.
1: But um, wait, why? if they're such big-time thieves, why are they? Why do they have to choose to buy bread or wine?
0: Because
2: they've fallen onto hard times, Tim. Oh, it happens oh, to the best of us.
0: People have gotten more cherry with their valuables. They're mm-hmm. like, hey, people are stealing our stuff. Let's... Fuck it up.
3: We only have Satan Zeros' word that, that he's done all this awesome stuff. You know, yeah, we only true. know from his perspective that he's actually supposedly like an awesome thief. Maybe he <laughs> sucks.
0: Yeah, well, there was one time he nearly got caught with a sack of red yams, which, you know, that's that's Ocean's Eleven. I
2: bet there, there were some yams. It's like the opening of Aladdin or something. <laughs>
0: Sadly, yeah, they don't have very much effect. They have what all of three puzzleures, so it's either the pomegranate wine or
1: or bread bread. They decide to get drunk, and in while they're in the sauce, satampra comes up with the one big score, one last big score. Tiro of Ampalios, I said, is there any reason why you and I, who are brave men and no wise subject to the fears and superstitions of the multitude, should not avail ourselves of the kingly treasures of Camorium? A day's journey from this tiresome town, a pleasant sojourn in the country, an afternoon or forenoon of archaeological research, and who knows what we should find? You speak wisely and valiantly, my dear friend, rejoined Tiruv Ampalios. Indeed, there is no reason why we should not replenish our deflated finances at the expense of a few dead kings or gods.
0: Because that's always a bright idea.
2: I know, that's the best logic ever. I mean, they're dead, right? They're only kings and gods, what could possibly go wrong?
0: Well, the gods, you know, that is not dead, which can eternal lie. Just...
3: It's not like this is a world with magic and, you know, giant monsters <laughs> and dinosaurs and roaming around and stuff.
0: Oh, no.
1: <laughs> there can't be any consequences to this.
3: Now, Camorium, as all the world knows, was deserted many hundred years ago because of the prophecy of the white Sibyl of Polarion who foretold an undescribed and abominable doom for all mortal beings who should dare to tarry within its environs. Some say that this doom was a pestilence that would have come from the northern waste by the paths of the jungled tribes. Others, that it was a form of madness. At any rate, no one, neither king nor priest nor merchant nor laborer nor thief, remained in Camorium to abide its arrival, but all departed in a single migration, to found at the distance of the day's journey the new capital, Ouzolderum. And strange tales are told of horrors and terrors not to be faced or overcome by man that haunt forevermore the shrines and mausoleums and palaces of Pomorium. And still it stands, a luster of marble, a magnificence of granite, all a throng with spires and cupolas and obelisks that the mighty trees of the jungle have not yet overtowered in a fertile inland valley of hyperborea and men say that in its unbroken vaults there lies entire and undespoiled as of yore the rich treasure of olden monarchs that the high-built tombs retain the gems and electrum that were buried with their mummies that the fanes have still their golden altar vessels and furnishings the idols their precious stones in ear and mouth and nostril and navel It
2: sounds like a great place to get drunk and pillage. Yeah. Right?
3: <laughs> it, you know, when you find out what made people leave Comorium in um, the Testament of Osimaeus, you, you, you would not believe they would actually build a new city just a day away. I would like to move <laughs> to another continent. <laughs> right? They didn't Osimaeus. go very
1: far. <laughs> well, look, it's hot. It's the jungle. They're not going to travel that far.
2: <laughs> How do you – can we put this moment – so we have two thieves, a party of two thieves. They get drunk in an inn. Yep, or I'm assuming they're in an inn, I guess. Well, but get the, drunk somewhere. I'm
0: assuming they're in a street, but yeah, no, uh, they're
1: in a tavern because they had to go there to buy the wine. Uh, Don't yes. they like stand outside first to debate? All right, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted
2: to put this into like D and D logic. Like, what right. is this moment? Uh-huh. It's like, is it is it a sandbox? And they're like, the two player characters are like, let's get drunk, and then you roll on a chart, and it's like you know the myth of Camarium, and the, I think the so. players
3: are like, we're going there.
1: We're going uh, to Hex 245.
3: I feel they're railroaded into going personally.
1: <laughs> you think they're railroaded? <laughs> yeah. This doesn't
3: feel like a railroad Well, to it's me. not like he no, suggests, no. like, well, we could go here. We could go there. We could, like, right. go sailing to the Isle of the Torturers in a couple billion years. We know. It's just, like, one option.
1: Yeah, plus later on, they're kind of forced to uh, confront things. That feels like railroading. This is maybe, like
2: the dm dangles this bait and the players go for it because they rich stuff
1: guys rich stuff
0: do you want loot and probably not much to do for it so less (laughs) chance of leveling because there's absolutely positively nobody at all in there so
1: smith smith is a good dm because he makes you feel like you're making a good choice even though it's the only option i can't wait to alienate all of our (laughs) non-dm
2: listeners So then I roll a d20 and it's
1: like.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you rolled to bluff your way back into your lodgings so that you can actually uh, yeah, go right. on the trip.
1: Roll on uh-huh. the alcohol, so they, um, alcohol
3: miscability table. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> so they're partying hard and they they're in love with this idea of going to this forgotten doomed city. They bully their way into rooms because they're Wasted, drunk, so they wanted to sleep the night, and the innkeep can't stop them. And then, since they were drinking, this I found hilarious that they were drinking so much that they overslept. (laughs) Yeah,
0: we're going on an adventure. Yeah, when the hangover's off. Yeah,
1: so they slept late, and then they head out to the country the next day.
0: Don't they also say that they're not?
2: They weren't drunk enough to actually do it that night. Isn't it that like if they had had one more bottle of wine, they would have just done it? I love these guys. (laughs)
1: I know. I know. They're like junkies looking for that last big score. Oh, this this is gonna change our life. And then they oversleep and then they travel out to the country and Tim, steal. They're food not and-
2: like junkies, they're like Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones <laughs> okay. is not a junkie. And I resent like- the implication. <laughs>
1: They're like the typical D and D group murder hobos.
3: Yeah, they're like Indiana Jones, if he like stopped and like murdered and stole stuff from right. people on the way to the archaeological dig, you know.
0: And you're saying he didn't because I have fanfic that says otherwise.
3: Uh-huh. I've
2: seen Indiana Jones murder so many Nazis, I don't even think that I can. Dude kills. Dude you're is not, not afraid very to uh, kill.
3: respectful of native peoples at Indiana Jones.
1: No, exactly, no.
2: whether they're natives of Germany or India,
3: Smith really writes about his hero's appetites. It's so un Lovecraftian they're all picking out yeah. on bread and wine and palm wine and like melons and like stolen fowl that they cook in the woods. It's so sad that Lovecraft probably only liked to eat like bread and cheese and coffee and <laughs> no.
2: Yeah, I have this. I have this sneaking suspicion that Clark Ashton Smith like legitimately enjoyed being alive, and H.P. Lovecraft legitimately <laughs> hated being alive. Like, well, <laughs> yeah,
0: I have a theory from reading Lovecraft's letters that he had a bit of an eating disorder, just based on reading right. him and talking to friends of mine that have acknowledged eating disorders.
2: I also think that these like these characters are so. Uh, and although we don't, I mean, we don't know them that long in this story, at least. But they are. They just have. They seem to have such personality. Like they're vivacious.
0: Yeah, they're almost they more
2: vivacious than any character we've met in any other Smith story, actually. They're like, I don't know, they just feel like they're out for a good time. Like, they seem like fun characters to be around, which is pretty rare in – it has been pretty rare in, in Smith and is definitely rare in, in Lovecraft. Not to constantly make Lovecraft comparisons, but it's rare that you that you encounter a character who's like, hey, these guys are kind of fun. Like, you know, they're not dire madness-bound adventurers, you know?
1: And even yeah. when they, they eventually get to the jungle – when they get there and they get to the, the overgrown road and they head in and it's all strange. The
3: description of the journey into the jungle is very evocative, though.
1: Yeah, it's so good. And they're kind of spooked by everything, by the stealthy vipers and enormous moths. And purpureal bats.
3: <laughs> what does that uh, word mean? Purple, but just really a bad purple.
0: The, the connotation, yeah, of a purple co- color, which is in fact oh, yeah, like Reddit, but weird. Yeah, that's gross.
1: So huge, sickly purple bats with tiny red eyes.
0: Yeah, and they, they, they feast on poisonous looking fruit, yeah. which is. This is the part where
2: they succeed on the um, random encounter table to not have any random encounters.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The GM keeps rolling and saying, you see a bat eating a poisonous looking fruit. We fight it? I ignore it. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> you're really
2: sticking
1: with this theme
2: hey when i make a decision tim i stick to it whether it's the yeah. right decision
1: or the wrong decision. i'm learning that so they're quiet and they're spooked until they start knocking back some drinks because they stole a large leather and bottle full of palm spirit and that starts lightening their mood
3: so they walk through the jungle and finally in the middle of the night they come to they come to Comorium. they finally come to the ruined city and they start exploring, and the first building they see, coincidentally, is the uh, an old temple, and, and they approach this ancient temple, which is kind of simple and crude compared to the other buildings of the uh, of the city and uh, I believe they recognize it as the temple of Sasagua immediately, don't they?
1: Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. they're familiar with him, but he's like an older god that nobody really worships anymore.
2: Uh, and then we have this rather long reading. Does somebody
1: pretend you- you're dming?
2: Man, if I were DMing, I'd blow it even worse.
3: Let's let's set it up. Let's set it up. Okay, yeah. I examined the temple. What does it look like?
2: The temple, like the other buildings, was in a state of well-nigh perfect preservation. The only signs of decay were in the carven lintel of the door, which had crumbled and splintered away in several places. The door itself, wrought of a swarthy bronze all overgreened by time, stood slightly ajar. Knowing that there would be a jeweled idol within, not to mention the various altarpieces of valuable metals, we felt the urge of temptation. Surmising that strength might be required to force open the verdigris-covered door, we drank deeply, and then applied ourselves to the task. Of course the hinges were rusted, and only by our dint of mighty and muscular heavings did the door at last begin to move. As we renewed our efforts, it swung slowly inward with a hideous grating and grinding that mounted to an almost vocal screech, in which we seemed to hear the, the tones of some unhuman entity black interior of the temple yawned before us and from it there surged an odor of long-imprisoned mustiness combined with a queer and unfamiliar fatidity. to this however we gave little heed in the natural excitement of the moment with my usual foresight i had provided myself with a piece of resinous wood earlier in the day thinking that it might serve as a torch in case of any nocturnal explorations of camorium i lit this torch and we entered the shrine the place was paved in, with immense quinquangular flags of the same material from which its walls were built. It was quite bare, except for the image of the god enthroned at the further end, the two-tiered altar of obscenely-figured metal before the image, and a large and curious-looking basin of bronze supported on three legs, which occupied the middle of the floor. Giving this basin hardly a glance, we ran forward, and I thrust my torch into the face of the idol. I had never seen an image of Thogwell before, i recognized him without difficulty from the descriptions i had heard he was very squat and pot-bellied his head was more like that of a monstrous toad than a deity and his whole body was covered with an imitation of short fur giving somehow a vague suggestion of both the bat and the sloth his sleepy lids were half lowered over his globular eyes and the tip of a queer tongue issued from his fat mouth in truth he was not a comely or personable sort of god and i did not wonder at the cessation of his worship which could only have appealed to very approval of aboriginal men at any time. Everything about this passage is D&D. Let's start at the top.
0: Quinquangular. Quinquangular.
2: Quinquangular is my new favorite word. It's, it's a great one. It's so good. Yeah,
1: so they creak open the door. Oh, hold on, Tim. The, what did they yeah.
2: have to do to open that door? They Put had to in D&D make D&D their uh,
1: Ben Barr's open gates rule exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Probably strength.
2: They have to pass a strength check, and then they get inside, and it's dark. And the DM says, "Does any of you have a torch?" <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I I grabbed some uh, some resinous material out in the jungle.
3: <laughs> so they yeah, run it, forward, it, and they they look at. Is this first time Sasagawa actually appears in fiction?
0: Yes. Um, yeah. This is the is. story in which he came came up with it, uh, according to his own letters.
1: Yeah, and there's no there's no rich stuff. It's it's bare. There's just this squat, obscene idol, and a stink basin. I
2: want to I want to go back to what Jason was just saying, though. Like, they light the torch, and yeah. the first thing that he does is just, excuse my French, fucking run up to the face of Zagwa <laughs> and stick his torch in its face. It's insane. <laughs> like... I love this guy. <laughs> yeah. What like what do you think that is? Like is he just that curious? Is he that drunk? Like what's going on?
1: <laughs> yeah, this is why they're here. They're here to go and rob these idols of their riches. So of course he's gonna run up and try to inspect it. But
0: doesn't
2: he do that after he knows there's no riches?
0: Well he hasn't seen anything else in the room, but you know, he's going to try that A D and D cover handbook yeah, right and pry exactly. the jewel eyes out. Yeah. That's absolutely. what
1: it, this made me think of. That that cover to the what was it, the player's manual? With the yeah, thieves crying. Yeah. So he was looking at that cover thinking, oh, there's going to be rich stuff in this idol, but nope.
3: They look all around, but there's nothing of value. There's not a gold piece to be had, and they're kind of pissed off.
0: Which gives me a lot of questions about the worship of Sathagwa. If we step back and say, okay, so we don't, spoiler, if we don't get to see inside of any of the other temples and see if there actually is lucre, just. Hiding around if there are piles of gold, if there are jewels or anything. So, does this say that the cult is so ancient that it's it's rooted in this Stone Age type of work where everything's just carved and there's no jewels yet? It's just um, just the deity and and the funky basin and the altar. Yeah,
1: what well, the basin's made out of? It's made out of metal, right?
0: Uh, yeah, I guess so. It's
1: like bronze or something.
0: I want a Sothogwa Idol, by the way. If any of you guys yeah. ever see one, I want it. Or a Sothagua Idol Kickstarter.
3: I think <laughs> Smith carved some Sothogwa Idols.
1: Yeah, he did. I wonder if they, if anybody makes like a reproduction of it. That would be awesome to have. He looks weird. He looks like a little like a little weird little man god
3: dude that would be Talk so cool like a best of clark ashton smith's sculpture like reproduction yes. thing and they could all have little candle holders and stuff and then and, and oh, <laughs> that would be great that would be awesome you can float them in the bath while you're you know <laughs> <laughs> uh, so relaxing geez, so you're,
2: you're not aware i guess people listen to the podcast but are are aware either but like i for a while i was obsessed with trying to figure out who has all of clark ashton smith's artwork because there's obviously tons of it right and i found some people who have some of his like his paintings and drawings and stuff but i i have no idea who has his sculpture and i i read somewhere that that the whatever's left of um arkham house publishing might actually own his his statuary and
0: this is why we have to buy arkham house i mean take it over (laughs) hostily
2: but i would love to see in in real life his his uh carving i think it would be amazing
0: I would like just steal in real life his carving.
2: All right, Ruth, don't let's not let's not proclaim criminal intent. You
3: know that thieves <laughs> often come to bad ends, perhaps from creatures yeah. squatting in like bowls of the Arkham House. Like, Guys, these,
2: like, let's get some pomegranate wine and we'll go to Wisconsin, <laughs> and then we'll head uh, to wherever the hell they are, somewhere outside of Madison, and we'll just see. I mean, maybe. We can pass our strength check and... Uh...
1: I'll I'll pack a torch.
0: <laughs> I'll bring the, uh, the palm wine once we get there. Actually, I have some friends in Madison that might be up for a caper. This could happen. Anyway, <clears throat> I also like that this dog was fuzzy, by the way. That he's not yeah. just... Uh-huh. Yeah,
1: he's like he's a, a furry, he's too. Fuzzy.
3: You know, now that you mention it, I'm kind of thinking of this way that the Buddha's hair is is like shown in sculptures, where it's really stylized and like tightly bound yeah. around his
0: Ooh, that's prettier than I was thinking. Yeah,
3: it could just be like a bunch of little lumpy, you know, whatever. Yeah. Do you think that
2: uh, Smith was thinking of like Buddha imagery when he came up with this? Because it always struck me as very Buddha-ish too. Yeah, how how with his little,
1: his little tongue sticking out and his sleepy lids. Or was it just supposed to look like sloth-like? I don't know.
3: There's definitely a lot of like sort of a, a primitivist ideas of what it, like an idol sh- quote unquote should look like in mm-hmm. here, you know, plus plus there like the monster monster movie.
1: So they don't find any gems, <laughs> but they do find this basin with this odorous liquid in it. And they he he says specifically that it doesn't smell like decay or death. It smells like an animal, like some violent and unclean creature of the marshes, which I thought it was a really good touch because it would be super easy to just say it smelled like death and decay, but mm-hmm. yeah. nope. Let's get the musky smell of an animal. So they're looking in, and then it just starts to bubble.
3: The center of the liquid swelled as if with the action of some powerful yeast, and we watched in utter horror while an uncouth, amorphous head with dull and bulging eyes arose gradually on an ever lengthening neck and stared us in the face with primordial malignity. Then two arms, if one could call them arms, likewise arose inch by inch, and we saw that the thing was not, as we had thought, a creature immersed in the liquid, but that the liquid itself had put forth this hideous neck and head, and was now forming these damnable arms that groped toward us with tentacle-like appendages in lieu of claw or hands. The whole mass of the dark fluid began to rise, and far more quickly than the Savannah juice runs from my pen, it poured over the rim of the basin like a torrent of black quicksilver, taking as it reached the floor an undulant Ophidian form which immediately developed more than a dozen short legs. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> this is the awesomest scene ever. It's so <laughs> it's good. True. There's more though, there's more. What unimaginable horror! What unimaginable horror of protoplastic life! What loathly spawn of the primordial slime had come forth to confront us, we did not pause to consider or conjecture. The monstrosity was too awful to permit of even a brief contemplation. Also, its intentions were too plainly hostile, and it gave evidence of anthropophagic inclinations. For it slithered toward us with an unbelievable speed and celerity of motion, opening as it came a toothless mouse of amazing capacity. As it gaped upon us, revealing a tongue that uncoiled like a long serpent, its jaws widened with the same extreme elasticity that accompanied all its other movements.
1: Ah! (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's an amazing number one monster and reveal of a monster.
0: Yeah. It's
3: It's so great. I love What Blobs. is it? Blobs are so scary.
1: <laughs> it feels very much like a modern horror movie. Like, I feel like you would see this in a in a film today.
3: Yeah. Hopefully with, like, good CG and not bad CG. Yeah. yeah, Proper CG.
2: Oh, what, what by the logic of the story, or if we want to uh, go off the logic of the story, do you think that this is?
3: Well, it's interesting that it's not like a little clone of Thessagua, or the Thessagua yeah, itself, exactly. like, gets up and is like, waddles over, you know? <laughs> Can you hold on, hold on. Can you make a
2: sound effect for uh Sethagwa waddling?
1: <laughs>
3: I
0: feel it should
2: be heavier sounding,
3: but
0: See, I feel like <laughs> something like that maybe is
3: that was that your are you having a cold there or is it a, sort of a, yeah. a good, yeah, blowing your Sothog nose out. on your microphone i
0: was i was using my cold to help me make that heavy Sothogway sound <laughs> nice sort of gross general sound which i thought was apt
3: yeah you're never you know what the hell this creature is but um but lovecraft tells us what it is later on in the uh, the mound right does he? Oh, that's right. That he then.
1: does, doesn't he?
3: Yeah. In fact, yeah. I have it. here the quote from H.P. Lovecraft. Yeah. From yeah. Down. All right. Because um, in that, he has like, it's got all the underground worlds that are layered on top of one another. And um, uh-huh. the human-like people ones live in the in Kenyan, where most of the story takes place. But there's this backstory where they go down into the black gulf of Nakai below mm-hmm. the earth. And... at any rate when the men of Kinyan went down into the nakai's black abyss with their great atom power searchlights they found living things living things that oozed along stone channels and worshipped onyx and basalt images of Sathagua. but they were not toads like sathogua himself far worse They were amorphous lumps of viscous black slime that took temporary shapes for various purposes. The explorers of Kenyan did not pause for detailed observations, and those who escaped alive sealed the passage leading from red-litten yoss down into the gulfs of nether horror.
1: They're not monsters, they're men!
0: (laughs) (laughs) And they worship, they're Sethago worshippers, which is a really cool, cool touch for it, that it's not just like... It's some sort of pet or slave or whatever. Yeah. No, it, it worships the Thugla and it's just curled up cozily here. But and this and one has is been
3: living alone for a long time out in the sticks. Right. So it's, pro- it's probably pretty weird, <laughs> even if you talk to it. He's know?
2: lonely. Yeah. That, that bit of uh, intertextual answering just blew my mind, by the way. I'm going to have to pick <laughs> my jaw up off.
1: Of I know. <laughs> um, so yeah, so as this thing, it does kind of a little bit seem like it is lonely because it chases them. And it could, he even mentions in the story, it could have easily grabbed them. It could have easily, elastically caught up with them because it it keeps changing its shape the entire time it's chasing them. Maybe so it's like it a seems, cat. Yeah, it seems like it's playing with them, or maybe it is, maybe it is trying to uh, make contact with them in some way.
2: Oh, I wanted to talk about, like, it, uh, I noted a little thing. I'm sorry, back a second. In the passage where they describe the monster... Where I don't think it's meant to be humorous, but it strikes me as an odd tonal choice to say instead of it wanted to eat us, to say (laughs) it gave evidence of anthropophagic inclinations, (laughs) which I I don't I don't know if it's meant to be comedic in this case. Like, I think it's but it's there's something in there to me that speaks to what will eventually become the like weird comedic tone of hyperborean stories where it's like, it's funny that he says it that way.
1: Because you picture him <laughs> strapping on a bib and taking out like a fork and knife and like well, and scraping like, them against one like, another.
2: There's giving evidence of something, and then there's opening a giant mouth and trying to eat something. Like, and like there's like a weird, almost wry understatement about it.
3: That's how it's different from a Jack Vance story. Because if it was a Jack Vance story, the monster would actually talk and would be like, Excuse me, I'm sorry you've awakened <laughs> from me from my slumber. Do you mind if I eat you? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let me
2: give some evidence of my intentions. <laughs> Uh, so they get chased by
3: this thing
0: through jungle or hill or vale up to the moon and back. On. Very
3: fairy tale. They run around all night and until they mm-hmm. are so tired.
0: And suddenly, hope on the horizon. It's a city. Oh, crap! It's Camorium. Quick, let's go back into the same temple and lock ourselves in. That's a great idea.
2: See now, I feel railroading.
0: Yeah. Right,
1: exactly. Oh, you're not getting away. I've I've this is the only thing that I have planned. So
0: Sorry guys, you end up You find yourself
2: in
1: back in front of the but temple. But
2: it could also be really bad rolling. It's true. I do think it's a little bit like I wish that they had run into a different building. It would be nice to see a different building in the same city.
0: Mm, right. except well except for how it ends which you know kind
2: well of right, i mean the end ending up. is awesome but i'm just saying from like a literary explorer's point of view i would like to have a a glimpse of, a, of one of the other buildings maybe you
0: know? run through a building and discovered it didn't have any locks so the thing kept pursuing them over piles of jewels yeah, or something because that know. would be awesome yeah
3: from an archaeological yeah. perspective it would be nice to see more of camorian
1: can we talk for a second about the word for omening sure just that for omening Is that kind of redundant? You're getting a premonition of your omen, which is (laughs) also a a premonition.
3: It's like Uh, four double shadowing. (laughs) Uh,
1: Yes, so they stop, and no farther away than the toss of a javelin is the temple of Tisagua. That's how I measure distance as well.
0: (laughs) Which, I mean, who's throwing the javelin? Because my real-life strength is, you know, like an eight d and listeners will know that I'm below average.
2: <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. And now you give up. <laughs> now I give up. And now I've, I've changed my mind. Uh, so they run back into the temple and they... Did they slam the door they had previously opened?
1: Well, they lock
0: them? it, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, they, yeah, they're able to slam it shut and use all their strength again to lock it. And they think they're safe. But then... And this was actually an interesting callback where he says i think i have said that the lintel of the door had crumbled and splintered away in several places and he did so it's i feel like it was unnecessary but that's a cool little narrative trick well i had forgotten
0: so you know and it makes you say oh i know what's all right
2: um so the creature then oozes through the holes which leads me to the supposition that clark ashton smith actually invented the t-1000 and probably like morphing technologies like all of 90s cinema effects can be linked back to this story now
3: officially yeah. By me. I know this wasn't the first blob <laughs> story, but it's, it's pretty damn good.
1: The creature actually kind of reminds me of the Beast of Averon a little bit.
0: A little bit, but the Beast of Averone isn't quite so malleable. But yeah, it, is, it, is it is fairly flexible. But.
3: Yeah. It's more like a chaos beast. It's always shape-shifting, and this is just like a blob. It's like a big yeah. slimy yeah. blob.
1: Viscous. Can we talk about the words chaos beast for a second? No. <laughs>
3: so the monster starts oozing back into the temple and they have they have like a split second to decide what to do. And there's two objects in the room to hide behind, both of which actually suck, but they have no choice. So Satan so for Zeros, he just he jumps behind the only decent thing to hide behind, which is the statue of Sasagua. Well, meanwhile, saying, farewell, Taru Van and just leaving him Sorry, bro. completely fucked. And so Taru Van has no choice but to stupidly jump inside the basin where inside. The, monst- when the monster had come.
1: But I like that he also, he doesn't have the dialogue of saying it, but he also returns like the, uh, goodbye, Satampra's zeros.
3: <laughs> See you in hell, sucker. Yeah,
2: right. Yeah. <laughs> so the creature comes in and it, like, reels up over the bowl and then it's is like a lapsing wave or a giant mouth, it yeah. crashes into the bowl over Tirov. There's a lot of verbiage put behind what it does. It, like consumes him, but there's no noise. Like it, there's no, he doesn't scream. He's just like completely
0: smothered, and he's not really sure what's going on there. So he waits for a little bit. He's just
3: waiting behind the statue, afraid to move, and he can maybe hear some little weird noises, but doesn't know what's going on until finally he uh, sticks his head out, and it's just a just a featureless pool of black slime just like before
0: so this is when he decides that he should make his escape while the getting's good and while it's eating or whatever it's doing
1: but he wants to do it sneakily because he feels that it would be highly injudicious to disturb the entity in the bowl while it was digesting tiru <laughs> on Palio. so you know he's being considerate yeah
0: even as i shot back the bolt A single tentacle sprang out with infernal rapidity from the basin, and elongating itself across the whole room, it caught my right wrist in a lethal clutch. It was unlike anything I had ever touched. It was indescribably viscid and slimy and cold. It was loathsomely soft like the foul mire of a bog and mordantly sharp as an edged metal, with an agonizing suction and constriction that made me scream aloud as the clutch tightened on my flesh cutting into me like a vice of knife blades. In my struggles to free myself, I drew the door open and fell forward on the sill. An awful moment of pain, and then I became aware that I had broken away from my captor. But looking down, I saw that my hand was gone, leaving a strangely withered stump which little blood issued. Then gazing behind me into the shrine, I saw the tentacle recoil and shorten till it passed from view behind the rim of the basin, bearing my lost hand to join whatever now remained of Tiruv on Polis.
1: Do you guys think that the creature made his hand wave to him <laughs> as it went into the doorway? So yeah, that was, now we know why he lost his hand. I don't know, I feel kind of, there's something about this ending that it's not that satisfying to me.
3: Because somebody survives, right?
1: Yeah, because somebody survives and the creature is still able to do what it wants.
0: Well, I kind of like that the creature stays there, guarding, worshipping Sathagwa,
1: The Thane of
0: Sathagwa.
3: I think it's a pretty awesome ending. Although, I mean, I wonder how he gets back to town and what the hell happens to him. But, um, right. you know, but uh, it it's a nice in-between. He's completely screwed, but he doesn't die horribly like most of his characters. Yeah, he gets to come back later in a sequel.
0: And I liked that he, um, that when he lost his hand, I was wondering at first, uh, the first time I read it. Wait, he loses a hand in the middle of the a jungle forest thing. His right hand with nobody else around. How is he going to stop that? Oh, there's not much blood flowing out. I see what you did. It's like a lightsaber or something.
3: But when I drew it, I drew lots of blood because it's not as satisfying <laughs> unless you draw a ton of blood whenever possible.
2: Well, I, and if if you're if you're reading it as a as a comic and you haven't read the story and noted that passage. It would, it's true. It wouldn't make any. A, sense. And I looked at it, and I would be like, "Oh, he didn't want to draw the blood." So I feel like it's <laughs> exactly good that you went that route.
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: So there is another um, Satan Zero story, and would you guys say that it probably comes before or after this one? I guess they don't. They're, they don't really say. huh? You're
2: saying it does it come like in the in the life of satan Zero? So does it come before or after?
3: Well, it probably come. Actually, it must come before because he, um, yeah, he. I don't think there's any reference to him not having a hand. but
0: this story is probably this feels like an end-of-life written story maybe that's true
3: you know, there's one, um, spoilers, but um, in that story, The Theft of the 39 Girdles, I mean, it, it's actually a pretty different mood, and uh, I prefer this one, but um, it, speaking of uh, drawing the story, um, since there's no physical description of either of the characters, I pretty much just made them up. I made Ampalios the semi-handsome one, and I made Zeroes like the pasty weirdo, but in <laughs> retrospect, when you, I, I had forgotten that in the sequel story, The Theft of 39 Girdles, he has his hot girlfriend, but I just think that adds more dimension to his character, you know, that he's... So yeah, that's my I think
1: so. And he's definitely a like a charming dude, yeah. you know, he's he's got a way with words and he's able to he's able to convince uh, his buddy to go trek into the jungle drunk to raid this doomed city so he's got I love these he's guys. got some game yeah, I know. yeah
3: he's more than just a pretty face when yeah. you
2: were when you were drawing the book what I guess it's kind of a general question but specifically for this like what are your artistic influences like yeah. when you set about to envision this like where did you start
3: well the first thing I did was I checked out like every single eyewitness guide from the library with on, like jungles and archaeology and um, right. crocodiles and plants and everything I could think of I mean I guess I'm influenced mostly by manga and by underground comics, like the type from the sixties and seventies, um, Richard Corbin, you know, the artists like that, you know, um, Hayao Miyazaki, his uh, Nausicaa graphic novel, things, things like that. I really, um, I'm fond of really detailed, illustrative kind of art, and I always sort of developed, I sort of developed in that direction. There wasn't any specific influence for um, September Zeroes itself, although I, I guess kind of as I drew it, the early parts that are more um, set up have more of a underground comics feel, and then later on I, I sort of started feeling a little more manga, and so right. when the action starts. But it's only a 20-page story, so it's not like, you know, right. it's not like a 200-page epic based <laughs> on this 8-page prose story, you know.
0: You would have had to, like, <laughs> write the entire story of all of their heists that he mentions including the yam theft which would have been awesome (laughs) (laughs) the story behind the heist of the yams
2: (laughs) what else do we want to say about the story i love it i can't quite put it you know because i love to put things in hierarchy because that's how i am i can't quite i can't quite hierarchy the story in my mind of but I, I know that I like it a lot in particular because of the way and we said this about a few of his stories, but this is another one that just sort of flies in the face of the idea of genre in general, because it, as we said earlier, just sort of like it, it really just does it all. It's like, it's like a horror comedy adventure fantasy, etc, <laughs> etc, cetera, et cetera. like whatever, you know, just kind of goes where it needs to go and does what it needs to do. And I think yeah. that's really cool.
1: And it's a great intro to this new setting. It's it's very exciting. And there is mm-hmm. a- an ending that leaves it open for for more stories.
0: I like that it introduces us to Sathagwa, who we've... I'm trying to think. I think we hear him mentioned in other stories, but I believe that um, chronologically, in terms of Smith's writing, they all do come after. Because this was written in 1929. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they all come chronologically after that. this. And actually, for once, bringing us... Face to face with Sathagua as compared to just referencing him in all the other stories, and what a face! That. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's so properly evocative that I got a good idea of what it looked like before I even saw Smith's drawings.
3: I think the really great things about the story are three: one, Sathagua, two, the slimy blob monster; and three, the narrative voice that makes yeah. it all sound so awesome.
0: Yeah, I like that we have the color that that the slimy blob monster adds to Sathagua. by by it not being a hymn story.
2: Can we talk briefly about what place Sothogwa has amongst the broader Lovecraft mythos? Because he strikes me as notably different than the others, probably specifically because Lovecraft didn't make him up. He feels like somehow more, uh, I don't know what the right word is, like less Removed. cosmic. Yeah, like yeah. Not all the others are huge and cosmic and, and sort of... I mean, Sthog yeah. was inscrutable in a certain way, but he just feels more earthy in a certain sense. Like,
0: yeah. yeah. Well, um, he didn't really know. I mean, Sathagwa didn't. So Lovecraft is basically just fell absolutely in love with Sathagwa. Even when incorporating him into his own canon, he did it because he fell in love with this idea that Smith had, which is, it's very um, fleshy.
2: Where does he fall in, in close as there can be to an actual canon of the of the mythos? Like, is, who is he related to, and what is he like? What is he, according to that, you know, whether we want to call it or not, we'll call it Canada or not, the logic of the um, the mythos.
1: Is he like an outer god or an elder thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Sathagua, the sleeper of Nakai. He's a great old one. Interesting. He ranks. He he's ranks. There.
0: <laughs> well, I always figure he's big and powerful, but he seems like a, a lazy great old one, which I'm okay with, like... He's the one that just waits for you to bring him sacrifices, if I recall correctly.
1: Well, his dex is only 27. Can we call them snack (laughs) (laughs) I
0: was looking at some references for Lovecraft's use of him, and he used him in the Mound, which was actually for Zelia Bishop, which is why I was thinking Sadie Smith for some reason. In Whispering Darkness, there's a little aside that he said, which I think we talked about at one point because it's very properly silly and very Lovecraft-Smithian. It's from Nakai that the frightful Sipthagwa came, you know, the amorphous toad-like god creature mentioned in the Nacotic manuscripts in the Necronomicon and the Camorium myth cycle preserved by the Atlantean high priest Clark Ashton. <laughs>
2: right. like, uh, Clark wow, look at that. was all tied together, wasn't it? We got Camorium and we got... Uh, Nacotic
0: manuscripts and Necronomicon and just everything. Yeah.
2: And
1: Atlantis.
3: So, I know you guys have posted it on the Facebook page, but have you talked about the... Um, Family tree of the gods that Smith and uh, Lovecraft wrote.
1: Not on the show, I don't.
3: It has a very ancient Greek feel, like um, like the Theogony, where he's writing talking about how the gods are related to one another and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and how like the formless night beget that, that beget that. Right, you right. know, it, it's very, uh, it's much more mythological than Lovecraft reference than the Lovecraft, you know, version of the gods.
0: Uh, here we go, the family tree of the gods as <laughs> drawn up by H.P. Lovecraft and working with Clark Ashton Smith. So at the top we have Azothoth. and let's just look for the tree with Sothagwa on it. We have the nameless mist and the darkness, which give birth to Yog Sothoth and Shub who together create Yeb, which begets Sothagwa which is the Sothogwa, um is cousin to Cthulhu, who's from Noog. They are the first of their respective lines to inhabit this planet. Nice. woohoo! So Sothogwa <laughs> and Cthulhu are cousins, which just shows you how much HPL adored Sothogwa.
3: Aw, that's really cute. It is probably cute. grew up together.
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: At least yeah. at, like, holidays and stuff, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that little family tree. It really highlights how... Um, geeky nerdy and funny lovecraft was with smith like, oh, i don't my- i don't know that he was like that with any of his other contributors just like
0: oh, oh i'm gonna build
1: up a, a family tree and make us descended from our the, our creations
0: with some of them, but really, really got into it with uh, with Smith.
3: It's interesting they were such good friends in the end because they had their they know their characters were pretty different in a lot of ways, like particularly around sex and stuff.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, and I either. guess every
3: most people were different from Lovecraft about that, but um. <laughs> Did you guys tell the story about how Smith did illustrations for the lurking fear and that they early on in his relationship with Lovecraft and they were full of like obvious sexual symbolism and like penises and trees and stuff and Lovecraft <laughs> didn't see it at all. And he's like, what great artwork. This is awesome. <laughs> you know, and Smith was like cracking up or what? Oh,
0: you know, I did see though a letter to Smith or to somebody where he was saying, yeah, you know, Loveman. Samuel Loveman is, sees all this phallic stuff in Young Smith's artwork, but you know the way he is—like nudge, that's nudge, wink, so wink. He you knows Loveman's gay, so he just sees penises everywhere. But I'm sure, I'm sure that's not it. But I've just, never
3: seen that artwork, so I don't know. Actually, I, I don't know whether actually I would see penises in it. You know, I mean, <laughs> I, I, do I dare look in the penis mirror of Smith's art?
0: I, I, I dare. I also want to see how he could work that into the Lurking Fear, which I don't see as a...
3: The Lurking Fear is totally phallic, but it's about inbreeding. I mean, it's just, it's a oh, story okay. of off-screen horniness.
0: Yeah, speaking of, of Smith and, and Lovecraft being silly, not actually trying to turn this topic away from penis trees. I, I was looking at some of the selected letters earlier to get Lovecraft's reaction to this, and I love that this start to a letter. Dear Clark Ashton, Ngak thinhiyu, Gup Rokob Githuk Gilya Sithagua Ynikathagua It hath come homage, Lord Sithagwa, Father of Night, Glory, Elder One, Firstborn of Outer Eternity. Hail thou who wast ancient beyond memory, ere the stars spawned great Cthulhu. Power, hoary crawler over Moose Fungoid places, Ia, Ia, Gnoth Kiyagha, Ya Ia Sathagua And then he goes on, <laughs> Sir, I am your most profoundly your debtor, and know not how I can make you sensible of the extreme degree of my pleasure and gratitude. Never I vow have I beheld so primal and sinister an idol of the old ones, and I cannot doubt for a moment that this doth represent no less a being than the Lord Sathagua himself. And he goes on quite a bit longer about Cthulhu. if you'd like to read it. It's the October 7th, 1930 letter on page 185 of Selected Letters, Volume 3. Because he goes on for a while about Cthulhu, but it just makes me so happy how he writes to him. I mean, it's a side of Lovecraft that you don't see in a lot of his writing.
1: wish I had a friend like Lovecraft who would write <laughs> me things like that.
0: Dude, did you not get my Christmas
3: card?
1: Oh yeah, that's true.
3: Dude, I love the story. It's so awesome. It's got... Disgusting evil monsters that that toy with the heroes and uh it's got jungles and ancient cities and thieves and wine and like off screen evil and debauchery and it's it's just really cool. I completely agree.
1: Here's a, a funny little story one of the first things that i ever purchased on the internet not the very first thing but within the first like 10 or 12 things was actually the animated version of jason your adaptation of the dream quest of unknown kadath on dvd I Whoa, still oh, have it, yeah oh my goodness so that was fun that's a fun little connection
3: yeah that was a pretty cool project um yeah the dream quest started out as a comic series i did back when i was 22 and then it um Got Then someone made it into a movie, and then it, uh, you know, now I graphic novelized it. I've gotten a lot of mileage out of that. HP Lovecraft podcast. <laughs> yeah.
0: But uh, well, it's it was, a great one. You know, yeah, I like
3: yeah. it. I like it a lot. It, yeah. Th- thank you for having me on the show, you guys. I love your show, and I listen to it all the time. And I, I hope you conquer the world soon, because uh, you <laughs> know it, it deserves to be listened to by all uh, all manner of folk.
0: For Sadagwa.
2: I think we should have Jason on again, maybe to do the other Centopro Zero story. Yeah. Or the That's Seven a great geases. idea. Or the Seven Geezes, yeah. Either Dude, way.
3: Seven Geeses is the
2: best. <laughs> okay, well in Seven <laughs> Geezes it is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Yay. But thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank I mean, you so much. It's it's awesome to have somebody who has such a pedigree with this material come on and talk to us about it. And, you know, we're still fairly newcomers to this to Smith. But yeah, it's it's great talking to somebody else about it other than the three of us just rambling back and forth.
3: Well, your show kicks ass and I would totally listen to the three of you rambling back and forth (laughs) about anything. So if you want to do that cooking podcast, you know, (laughs) about how to make, like, distilled pomegranate wine, please do it. Yes. I will be there. (laughs)
2: Next time we're doing uh, The Door to Saturn, I think we're going to split it into two episodes because it's quite long and quite crazy. I don't know if we'll encounter crazier words than we're going to encounter in door to saturn anywhere else (laughs) it's going to be a, a rough one i just know it stay tuned because it'll be an exciting one as well a fun trip yep right
1: It's got the musky smell of an animal. smells like Tim in the morning.
0: Ooh.
2: (laughs) And I know all about that.
1: Oh, God.
0: (laughs) I was in a different bedroom. (laughs)